Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundance provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned, death, reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. What is it about the Ukrainian situation that has so captured the hearts of America? I don't mean every single person in the U.S., of course, but lots of us. I find myself checking my newsfeed more frequently than usual for updates of what's going on there. Ukrainians are all over our screens, being killed in their streets, in their hospitals. But they are defiant. And from what I hear, many in the U.S. are more than sympathetic. I've actually heard not only of Americans who are shepherding and sending over humanitarian aid, I've heard of a few people, apparently, according to my news feeds, who are sending ammunition to them. And some 
few, perhaps, Americans are going to Ukraine to fight or staying in Europe and going to Ukraine to fight. It's interesting to me that even those of us who can't find Ukraine on the map are there in spirit. What is that? Why, why has that happened? I've actually talked with people about this. Why have they so captured our hearts? I don't think, I mean, I'm not denying that this could be a motivation, but I don't think it's just a commitment to preserving democracy. I don't think everybody is that ideologue-oriented, that idealistic. And I don't think it's just kind of an instinctive desire to champion the underdog, if I can use that word without intending any insult. I actually think it's more than that. As I think about it and pray about it, I think it's this. I believe we glimpse in them something that we want for ourselves. Not the suffering, of course, not the attack, of course, but I believe that every human being wants to be one in a great company of people who are striving mightily for a goal, a common goal, a goal that they believe is right. I believe that's a human desire. I think we want more than what we might call community, just sort of existing with other individuals in the same space and time. I believe we want to belong to a tribe. We want to belong to a, a people, a family in the best sense of the word. Ironically, that longing persists despite the, the frequent declaration that we hear, you know, I have my rights. But then on the other hand, we have John Donne's famous declaration, no man is an island. Now, those two things coexist sociologically and I think in our individual hearts. What do we do with that? The desire to be individual, but then this longing to be a part of something beyond ourselves, something great, something goal-oriented. I think the best thing we can do is listen to what God says, and I think he says a lot in the scripture that Joel just read. I think God speaks to us today in those verses from Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, and I think what he's telling us is the story of two families. To understand this story, it's really vital that at the very beginning we understand that at one time, once there was a first human being. This Hebrew word for man is transliterated, it looks like the word Adam, Adam. So scripture and traditionally Christians and Jews have called that first man Adam. He was a real historical individual. Now before you pounce, let me unpack just a little bit. We're not going to do a sociological, anthropological, paleontological uh, lecture here. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's important to understand. We know that lots of theories have been advanced. Lots of data has been offered on what we might call the origins of humanity, the origins of human beings. And the, even that phrase is a little fraught. But lots of theories are out there. But regardless of what we know, what we may think we know and what we obviously do not know. Holy Scripture asserts that at one specific place and time, God created the first human in his image. It's important that we understand that's the teaching of Scripture. 
The Bible doesn't insist, though, and this may intrigue you. Think about it later. Don't, don't get distracted. Listen to the sermon. But think about this later. The Bible doesn't insist that that man, that Adam, was the only human being of his species on the face of the earth at the time of the Genesis story. Read it again when you have time. Don't get your phone out now. The Bible simply attests the historical fact of this man's origin with the attributes that God gave him. He had an image and a spirit like his creators, and he had a free will. And what's more, despite the way some of us might have told the story if we'd been asked, this Adam is acknowledged scripturally as what we might call the corporate head, the first patriarch. In fact, the Hebrew word in biblical Hebrew and modern Hebrew, the, the term for human beings is b'nai adam, literally the children of Adam. So that's who we are, the family of man. So we have Adam to thank and to blame for so much tragedy that came afterward. Because the very next thing Adam did, according to the Genesis account, and again, we're not trying to give time frames here and time you know, calendars here, but the next significant event was that Adam took his free will and deceived by evil, he rebelled against the creator God. Adam tried to steal God's glory by becoming like God himself. For that act of rebellion, you know the story, Adam received in his person the punishment God had promised. First, spiritual death. He was separated from God. And eventually, physical death. And here's the kicker. Again, don't get out your theology books. You can think about this later. I'll be glad to talk with you about it. But here's the kicker. Scripture says that because Adam was the head of the family, so to speak, his sin consigned to every one of his descendants, that's each and every one of us here and there, God's curse. So every human being born is born with guilt and a sinful nature. So the banner over the family of man is death. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, or we might have translated that as a result, death came to all people because all sinned. In Adam, the, the lyricist who wrote the lyrics to Handel's Messiah, that great musical work, says, For as in Adam all died, so in Christ will all be made alive. For as in Adam all died. It's a gorgeous line. But he just picks that right out of Scripture. Well, that doesn't seem fair, does it? That when Adam sinned, we all sinned? Well, naturally, we don't like that. We don't like the doctrine that's known as original sin. It just seems unreasonable and unjust. Don't you think so? Why did God set it up like that? I don't know. And at the risk of sounding flippant, I would say, you'll have to ask him. But I will say this for myself. I am far less concerned with the abstract question of why 
than I am with the existential conundrum of what am I going to do about it. Scripture tells us that when Adam sinned, so did we, and you and I know that we still do. Regardless of when it started, and I don't think that's an incidental question. That's a significant question, but that's not the question today. The question is, what are we doing about it? What are we going to do about it? Because from the instant of Adam's sin, every member of the family of man has been warped inexorably toward self-fulfillment. And you and I wade through the fallout and the perpetuation of that every day of our lives. For every hero, we know there will be a villain. For every kindness, we're going to witness a killing. For every love, we're going to suffer loss. That's what it means to be in the family of man. We have fellow feeling, but never for very long. Our sinfulness separates us from each other. No matter what route you take, no matter how you try to go, you will not get back to the garden. And John Lennon notwithstanding, we cannot come together. We don't have a common goal. We have a common curse. Well, I could go home right there, but I'm afraid we would all be really down for the rest of the day. So I'm going to go on. You know that in your literary studies, I hope you remember middle school or whenever you learned this, that the climax of a story is the point of turning. Aristotle systematized this, but people were telling stories long before Aristotle. The climax is where something happens... And always after that, nothing will ever be the same. Well, the climax of the story of the family of man comes really early in the plot. Adam sinned. Climax, nothing's ever the same. But in the wisdom of God, in the time of God's planning, there came another man. A divine figure of whom the first man was only a type. And by the grace of that one man... Jesus of Nazareth came God's plan of rescue and renewal, to use Eric's phrase. In answer to the dark reign of sin and death, God brought about Act 2 of the story. His own work of reuniting human nature with himself and giving birth to the family of God. Jesus came. A human man descended from Adam yet also born God himself, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus did not sin, yet in his humanness was mortal, he could take on the punishment of all the sin of his sisters and brothers and could die, and he did, to take their punishment. And then because Jesus is also God, he could overcome death, and he did, reversing the curse for all time. Just as Adam's sin was the climax of the story of the family of man, the climax of the story of the family of God came on the cross and out of the tomb. When we try to talk about this with people who don't understand, we use all kinds of of imagistic language. We say God uh, declared us not guilty, sort of a courtroom scenario. Or we say 
uh, God paid our sin debt, kind of a financial scenario. Or we say God healed us from all our diseases, sort of a, a medical or a compassionate scenario. But Paul, in this scripture that Joel read, uses a different phrase. He calls the gift of God, the grace of God, the gift. The gift. The free will of God to justify and reconcile us to himself. It was the exact opposite of what Adam had tried to do. Remember what Adam tried to do? Tried to steal God's glory. God says, here, you can have it. I love you. You can have it. You can have it. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the ignominy of death on a cross. That's the way the writer to the letter to the Philippians, probably Paul, wrote it. Jesus said, you want it? I will die for you, and you can have it. We just can't even imagine that. You and I are born into the family of man in a hospital, in a taxi. I was born in my parents' house. It's just simple. You're not even aware. It's just that simple to enter the family of God as well. I love the way theologian N.T. Wright says it. Listen to this. He says, those who are grasped by the gospel are marked out as a covenant people who offer this God the obedience of faith, loving him from the heart. Those who put their trust in what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ can be assured that they are in the family of God. We just heard it this morning in the confession and assurance because those who receive him, those who believe in his name, God gives the right to become the children of God. I say indeed, I appreciate the, the, <laughs> appreciate the volunteer hallelujahs and amens, that's it. You know, we could go home, I feel a lot better, don't you? I might get dessert when I go home. But here's the fun part. The story's not over. There's a surprise ending. This is a three-act play. If we could title the first act sin, and we could title the second act salvation, we might title this third act superabundance, because that's what Paul wants us to get in this passage. That's what he wants us to get. He uses the words more and much and how much more. He uses that, those words and phrases over and over until he finally gets to verse 20. And it's like he just can't contain himself, literarily speaking. He says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And he uses a word there, all the more, which literally we could say superaboundingly. It appears in Scripture only one other time in 2 Corinthians, which Paul probably wrote, and it appears nowhere else in all of ancient Greek literature. Scholars, some think that Paul made the word up because he couldn't find a word that it said, this is the generosity of God. This is the extent of the grace of God. This is what God has done for us. Paul wants us to get it. Christ doesn't just deliver us from death and then leave us in subjection to evil. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus? So we're going to get death reigning through Adam, but 
we will be reigning in life through Jesus? What does that mean, reign in life? Rule in life. What does that mean? What could that possibly mean? I don't think we talk enough about this. It means something about eternity, but it means something about now as well. So I'm going to take you back to the battlefield. We long to be one with a great company of people striving mightily toward a goal that we know is right. What could be a greater goal? What could be a more glorious goal than bringing the kingdom of God? What could be better? But how do we do that? How can we live in the victory that God has already won? Well, let's be honest. It's not easy to be faithful to Christ in the world. The answers aren't always obvious. In the writings of great Christians of the past, you can read the spiritual and intellectual struggles of people who lived in violent times and who hasn't. What do I do? Do I act militarily? Do, am I, do I become a pacifist? Do I act now? Do I wait? All those answers, only God knows. Only God knows for sure. But make no mistake, God is calling you and me to serve in his kingdom. So without attempting to speak to areas of influence beyond my scope, I'm going to share with you what I believe God has put in my mind to say to you today. How do we serve? First of all, get this. God has made you able, because he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in you, to overcome sin and death in your life. You don't have to live in subjection to sin and death. Again, Jesus didn't just win the war and then go on back home. He sent his Holy Spirit. Again, we don't talk about this enough. The Holy Spirit is here and here and here and here and here. The Holy Spirit is in us. And the Bible says that in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. So three suggestions from the Word of God. Three practical suggestions. Number one, pray. Confess your sins to God. Repent of them. Receive His mercy and forgiveness. Praise Him for all that He's done for you, all that He's going to do. And then pray like it all depends on you. Pray like it all depends on you. Pray for the people of Ukraine, those who are fleeing and those who are fighting. Pray for the people in Russia who may or may not know and understand or care what's going on. And pray for all the other people around the world whose fighting escapes our notice, but it doesn't escape God's. And don't neglect to pray for people close to home who are also under threat. I don't mean military threat. I mean spiritual threat. And physical threat. Pray for people in our city, in our state, in our nation, maybe in our homes, who are threatening and tempted to do violence. Pray for spouses who are tempted to be unfaithful. Pray for people who are tempted by greed. Pray for parents and children, their spirits and their hearts. Pray for politicians who are tempted to do whatever it takes to hold on to power. Pray for business leaders who are tempted to do whatever it takes to hold on to money. And pray for leaders everywhere and followers. 
You don't have to tell God what to do. I don't know what to tell him to do with these situations. I just name them before him. I just call their names. I just call the situations. God knows what to do. But I want to be in company with them. You can do more than wish the Ukrainians well. You can do more than wish things were better here at home. You can do more than wish that your life had purpose. We can claim territory for Christ by praying and by obeying. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love and obey. Love like crazy. Love like crazy. That is God's battle plan, by the way. If, you, if you're not into military science, just the spiritual science, military marital science, that's God's battle plan. You see, love is magnetic, and God knows this. He wants more people in the kingdom. How are we going to get them there? Not by arguing with them about what they believe. Get over that. Not about trying to convince them with some cute illustration. Love like crazy. That's what you do. Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You're going to attract people to you. And you're going to give glory to God, and they're going to be attracted to God. Love like crazy. And finally, stay in the fight. Follow close to Jesus. Well, where is he? Ask God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear so that you can hear echoes of him, you can see traces of him, and you can know where he wants you to go. I don't need to go on. You get the idea. We don't just take our place in the family of God. We take a stand and we take action. But sometimes, in a certain slant of light, it looks like evil is still ruling. It looks like evil is still reigning. Don't be fooled. The devil is attempting what's called a rear guard action, but he has lost the war. Get hold of that. He has lost the war. You will face spiritual warfare in your life, your personal life, and in this world. No doubt about it. I'm not trying to make everything sound religious and ignore the realities of places like Ukraine and places like our city and our homes. I'm not trying to do that there's suffering all over the world. People are fighting, dying, being killed. There is no detente with the devil. I read this week a sermon. My sister sent me a quote, and I don't think this line was original with her bishop, but he used it in his sermon. There is no spiritual Switzerland. I love that line. <laughs> there isn't any neutral place. It's all war. Even the beauty but the Word and the Spirit of God, hold on to this, the Word and the Spirit of God will guide you and equip you in whatever He calls you to do. I do not know what God will call and equip you to do. That's beyond my understanding. But I can tell you these things. We're in it together. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We are urged and encouraged on by the saints and we are interceded for by Jesus himself. And until the last day and beyond, we can say with David, Israel's great warrior king, the little shepherd boy who felled a giant with a slingshot, our banners are flown 
in the name of our God. Amen.